Well, uh, we pick up in the book of 1 John, and so you can take your Bibles and uh, turn to 1 John chapter 4 and verse 7. And this is a new section that we're beginning this morning, and it is my favorite section of the book. I have two verses on my wall, verses that I want read at my funeral, and one of them is in this section, 1 John chapter 4, verse 10. Now, as, uh, as you're turning there, uh, you don't have to raise your hands, but how many of you have ever heard of Salty the Songbook? Okay, you have to be a certain age. Uh, there's like an age range where you would have heard that in the 80s and 90s, uh, Salty the Songbook. Uh, there was a big push by Christian songwriters and singers to try to help kids memorize Scripture. It was a good thing. And uh, Salty the Songbook was the fruit of that. We, as a kid, we uh, listened to Salty. Steve Green did some of these as well. You probably have heard some of those maybe. Uh, but these two verses, 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 and 8, were one of the very first verses that I memorized as a child. I remember singing this song on the swing set in my backyard when I was six. So that's how old this, the, the Salty of the Songbook is and how old I am. <laughs> but look at these verses with me. John says this, he says, Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. Now these verses, uh, and there's a good reason why Salty covered these verses. These verses contain one of three God is statements. John tells us in verse 8 that God is love, that God is love. And in chapter 1, verse 5, we heard that God is light. And in chapter 2, verse 29, we're told that God is righteous. And so those three things, light, righteousness, and love, define God's character for John in this letter. And so we're going to spend some time in these verses, not just in verses 7 and 8, but through this section. I actually don't know how long we're going to be here. I, I tried to outline it all, and I realized that's impossible. There's so much to be said. And so uh, we're going to spend some time studying these verses, starting in verse 7. But to get to where we're going, I want to go back to what we've been doing, and that's point one, how does it fit? How does it fit? Now, this morning, uh, normally what we do is we look at the verses and how they fit into John's logic in the text, in the flow of the text. And I don't want to do that any differently this time, but particularly verse 7 contains some signals that tell us that we are hitting John's main point in the letter. This is where he's been moving through the entire epistle. He, he's built structures in place in order for him to come to chapter 4, verse 7, and to address the issues that he does here. And there have been a lot of smaller points in the letter, but this is his final concluding point of the letter. This is where he wants to get to. This is his ideal in terms of what he's trying to communicate. And the way that we know that is because of the way that John puts in verse 7 a summary of everything that's gone before. His language in verse 7 is like little red flags that signal warnings that we've already heard certain things in the past and those are now coming together into this final section. And so we're going to actually look at four of these flags. There are four flags and so there's points A through D and I want to show you these specifically. The first one is in point A here. It is from God, the phrase from God. Look at verse 7 again with me. He says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. 
Now, now in Greek, you can't see, in English, you can't see this, but in Greek, it's very emphatic. This love is from God is very emphatic in the way that he writes it. And that should actually signal something in our minds because we've just heard the phrase from God, haven't we? Look up in chapter four and look at verse four with me. He says, you are from God, little children, and have overcome them. So he says, you're from God. And then if you look at verse six, he says, we are from God, the apostles. So John is connecting the from Godness of Christians and the word, and he says, now love is from God. So he's putting that phrase in there in order for us to understand how this fits together. We are from God, he says, you Christians are from God, and now love is from God. Love is the obvious fruit that God births in the heart of his people through the word of God that he has given us. So that's the first connector, the first marker that tells us he's dealing with what came in chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. The second marker is in point B. John says, let us love. Let us love. Look again at verse 7 again. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. Let us love. Now, this is a command. It's an imperative. He's telling us to do something. John is calling them, and interestingly himself, to the kind of love that he's already been discussing. He's already made a point about love, hasn't he? In fact, just look back with me at chapter 3, verse 11. Look back there. Uh, Turn with me. It's always good to hear pages flipping. My heart just rejoices when I hear the pages turn. It's nice. If you're using a digital Bible, that's okay. Clicking is also fine. Look at chapter 3, verse 11 with me. He says, For this is the message you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. So in verse 11, he says, this is what we should be doing. This is what we ought to be doing as Christians. We should love one another. And now in chapter 4, verse 7, he says, let us love one another. Do this thing. Act, right? That's what he's doing. And so we have this specific connection with chapter 3. From chapter 3, verse 11, all the way down to chapter 3, verse 24, we're told that love is the command that we should be obeying as Christians. So John connects us to chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. He connects us to chapter 3, verses 11 through 24. So we have this idea that love is from God, and we've already seen that we should love one another, which John now commands us to do. But there's more, actually. There are more connections, and this is point C, born of God, the phrase born of God. Look again at chapter 4, verse 7. He says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God. Now, where have we heard born of God before? Well, flip back to chapter 2, verse 29 with me. Chapter 2, verse 29. He says, If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who practices righteousness is what? Born of him. So we've already heard this idea of the new birth, right? And in chapter 2, verse 29, down through chapter 3, verse 10, John describes the new birth for us. He says, you have this new life in you. And if you remember, this is sort of the hinge section of the book. We have God is light, and then you have been born again, and now God is love, and you can love. And the central reality of that text is this idea of the new birth. So John wants us to understand that we as believers are born of God. We have a new nature inside of us that God has given us that causes us to live in the way that God wants us to live, to be righteous. And what does it mean to be righteous? To be righteous means to love, doesn't it? If we're loving, then we will be righteous. In fact, that's what Jesus told 
the man in Matthew 22, verses 36 through 40. He says, what is the greatest and first commandment? He says, love the Lord your God, and the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. On these two, if you remember the language, depend the law and the prophets. That word for depend is to hang something on a hook. All obedience, all righteousness hangs on love for God and love for others. If we're loving God and we're loving other people, we will live in righteousness. And so John has told us all of these things already, and there's actually one more marker. Look back in chapter 4, verse 7 with me. It says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Where have we heard the idea of knowing God before? This is point D, knows God. Where have we heard this before? Well, John has been encouraging us to know God through the whole letter, hasn't he? He's been telling us over and over again from the very start of the book that we can know him. John says at the beginning in chapter one, I knew him in the flesh, I saw him, and I'm telling you about Jesus so that you can also know him. You can actually know the person of Christ. But look with me at chapter two and verse three, look what he says. In chapter 2, verse 3, he says, By this we know that we have come to know him. (laughs) Isn't that awesome? He says, you can know that you know him. How? He says, if we keep his commandments. In other words, if we obey what he says to do, this is what love for God looks like. We then love people. So John is telling us that the knowledge of God, that knowing him causes us to have a new life inside of us. And that new life inside of us then produces a love that works itself outward in to other people. We love one another because we have his spiritual DNA in us. And because of that, we are commanded to love as an outflow of the life of God that lives inside of us. And that love is the natural byproduct of our knowledge of God because love is from God. So how does it fit? (laughs) What's the whole thing? Verse 7 is literally the whole letter summarized up into one phrase and then commanded to us for our lives. John is bringing all of his arguments together in this single command in chapter 4, verse 7. So this brings us to point 2, the command, God-like love, God-like love. Now I think this should be obvious to us as we consider John's command to us. He tells us to love. He commands us to do this. And it isn't just for us. Look at what he says in verse 7 again. Look with me there. He says, Beloved, let us love one another. (laughs) This is so interesting. The word beloved is actually the exact same Greek word. In fact, in Greek, they look like the same word. Beloved, let us love one another. He's including himself in the command, right? He says, I love you, but let us love one another. I need to love you more. He's saying that this is the universal command for all Christians. We should love our brothers and sisters in Christ. And it's been his theme throughout the book. And this section, this beginning in chapter 4, verse 7, is the crowning moment of his epistle. This is where he's been going through the book. So we have to ask ourselves this question. What kind of love are we talking about here? What kind of love are we talking about here? When he says, let us love one another, what does it mean? The answer, of course, is that it should be God-like love. We should love the way that God does because love is from God, right? And we've been born of God and we know God and therefore we ought to love in the same way that God loves. So what are the marks of God-like love? What does it look like to love the way God loves? Now, 
early on in the book, we did a series, a four-sermon series on 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 1 through 7, and you can go back and listen to those. We're not going to rehash those again, so, uh, but I would encourage you to go back and listen to those. I think they're helpful. But I want to show you these directly from the text of 1 John, and there's four here. The first one is point A, constant, constant. God-like love is a constant love. It's interesting, in chapter 4, verse 7, love is referenced always in the present tense. Notice what he says, beloved, let us love one another, present tense, right now. There's never a time when that isn't true. Let us love one another, for love is from God. In other words, the connection between God in us and our love for others is directly connected, and that means that we should constantly have a love for others. Now, why is that so significant? John is arguing that love should flow out of our hearts for other believers in a constant and continuous way. There should never be a time, ever, regardless of how we're treated, when love isn't flowing out of us as believers. There should never be a break in love between two believers. It should never happen. Now, Obviously, our experience in the church, in marriage, in families, can be different. So, no wonder John gives us the command, right? He says, do this. Love one another because love is from God. You have this in you. And that's how God-like love in the church should function. It should be constant. Now, I, I want to think about this specifically just for a second. I think we like to love people who are like us. You know? Have you ever noticed that? It's easy to love people who are like us. Similar interests, similar backgrounds, similar experience, similar personalities. It's easier to love people that are like us. And we love people who give us what we want. We love people who treat us with respect, right? It feels good to be treated with respect. Someone treats me with respect, I'll love them back. We're happy to love them. But when people don't love us, when people deny us the things that we want, when others treat us with disrespect, I think our flesh refuses to love them. We don't like that. Say, so I'm not going to love you. You show me no love. I'm not going to love you. But John's command is a universal command to constant love. This is fascinating. What is John saying to us? He's telling us that we should love one another constantly regardless of how we're treated. It doesn't matter how anyone treats you ever. Your obligation before God is to love them all the time. There's never a time, there's never a gap when you can say, well, my lack of love here is justified. Let me tell you why it's okay for me not love this person. It's okay. No, it's not. John says, always, constantly, we should love because love is from God and we are born of God. We know God, so we should love this way. And of course, this reflects God's heart, right? Because love is from God. We're going to cover that next week in verse 8. And God is love. Think of this. God never stops loving you, right? If you're a believer here this morning, God never stops loving you depending on how you treat him. When you get up in the morning and you don't read your Bible and you have a terrible day and you're mean to everyone, you cut people off on the freeway and you forget to share the gospel and you go to bed angry, 
God doesn't love you less than on the day when you get up and you read your Bible and you're godly and you let people in on the freeway and you're kind to everyone. You go to bed with joy in your heart. He doesn't, his love doesn't change. He loves you constantly regardless of your behavior. And so we should be like him in this regard. We should love constantly in the church. What does that mean? It means that that command is for each of us. One of the things I think we can sometimes do is say, well, I'm not being loved. But it doesn't matter, right? It doesn't matter. Actually, John would say, oh, well, you should love. Well, I'm not being loved in this way, but you should love, right? No one loves me the way I expected, but you should love. Because our obligation before God is to love constantly because we know him and we're born of him. So our love should be constant. The second thing that it should be is self-giving. This is point B. Our love should be self-giving. God-like love is self-giving. Turn back with me to chapter 3, verse 16. Let's look there. Look what he says. He says, We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. (laughs) That's an amazing verse. That's a stunning verse. We covered it. We spent a whole week on it. If you remember... Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he says this, just listen. He says, the cross is laid on every Christian. The cross is laid on every Christian. It is that dying of the old man which is the result of his encounter with Christ. As we embark on discipleship, we surrender ourselves to Christ in union with his death. We give over our lives to death. And so it begins. The cross is not the terrible end to an otherwise God-fearing and happy life, but it meets us at the beginning of our communion with Christ. When Christ calls a man, he bids him to come and die. That's an amazing quote from Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And we spent a whole week talking about this, how Jesus gave himself up for us. Jesus gave up his life, and we are called to give up our lives for our brothers and sisters. In fact, true Christian love is marked by loss. Have you ever thought of that? True Christian love is a losing. We lose what we have and what we are in order to love. We have to. Love is about other people. You cannot love others and maintain your own self-interest. Have you ever thought of that? You have to give yourself up to love. The two things are mutually exclusive. You and love cannot dwell together. And if you remember, we talked about three ways that we can love. First, we can give up ourselves by laying down our resources. We give what we have in order to help others who do not have. We give ourselves in that way. And that can sometimes be painful. It isn't always just giving what we can afford to give, but giving what we need to give that God calls us to. Giving what needs to be met. So we can lay down our resources to love. Second, we talked about how we're called to lay down our own wills in order to love. We give up our desires and our expectations of others because we love them. We refuse to allow relationships to be transactional. What is a transactional relationship? This person treated me this way, therefore I will do this thing. I will not love them. I don't like the way this person acts, Therefore, I will not love them. That's transactional. What has this person done for me lately? Therefore, I will not love them. 
Those are transactions. But true godlike love doesn't do that. True godlike love says, I don't need anything. I give everything to this person. I'm happy to give it all away. There's no equal sign in our relationship. It's always a greater than. Those kinds of transactional statements are marks of personal selfishness, not love. And third, we give up our identity. We willingly give up our own preferences, our own expectations, the way that we think of ourselves, our interactions with others that are based exclusively on who we are. We give those things up. Paul said, to the Jew, I became as a Jew. To the Greek, I became as a Greek. To those under the law, I was under the law. It didn't matter to me. I wanted to love them. And so I was willing to be who they were, to get to know them, to understand them. So we give up our own identity as well. So John's call is to give up ourselves in love, to be self-giving, to release ourselves and love other people for the sake of them and for the glory of God. So God-like love is first constant, and second, it's self-giving. And the third is point C. God-like love is active. It's active. Look at verse 17 of 1 John chapter 3. Look what he says. He says, But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? How can it possibly be that the love of God abides in him? Now, one of, the, one of the ways that we've defined love is as warm-hearted affection for another person. But it isn't only warm-hearted affection, right? That affection in the heart naturally and necessarily expresses itself in action. It has to. When you love someone, you act. Now, you, you guys know this. When you were dating your spouse, you men, you husbands, you know what it was like. If they asked you to do anything, what was your answer? Yes, Right? I will drive across town and be up at the crack of dawn in order to bring you a coffee before you start work. Yes, I love you. And it's not hard. The whole time you're like singing and you're enjoying the drive and everything is wonderful. Why? Love. Love. John is saying that that's the way we should always act. We should always act like that. If we have the world's goods and we close our hearts against a brother or a sister in need, that should be apparent that we don't actually love them. We don't love them. And that we don't have the love of God abiding in our hearts then. Now, obviously, that isn't just a statement of physical needs. It's not just if someone needs something physical, you'll give it to them. It's more than that. In fact, that word in Greek in verse 17, he says, whoever has the world's goods, that, that word is the word bios in Greek. It means life. It's everything that pertains to life, all of it. It's not just a statement on physical needs, it's everything, right? It's all of life. If you have a part of your life that's overflowing and you see a brother or sister in need or lacking and you close your heart against them, that's a sure sign that you're not loving them. Now, John isn't saying that a person who does this isn't saved, He's saying that it's a mark of a person who's not walking in godlike love. So our takeaway this morning is this, that true godlike love acts. It moves toward others with action because of the internal affection that it possesses. And of course, think of this. This is how God loves as well, isn't it? For God so loved the world, you can say the next word, that, right? God so loved the world that 
What did he do? He acted. He gave his only begotten son. That's the action that love produced in him. God not only expresses his love, and he not only says that he has that love, but he shows it in action as he cares for us and serves us in ways that are beyond the scope of anything we could understand. So God-like love is active. And there's one more, and this is point D. God-like love is genuine. It's genuine. Look at 1 John 3, 18. He says, Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. This is fascinating. John, John's, obviously, he's writing through the inspiration of the Spirit, but he's a genius. <laughs> love has to be in truth. True mark of love, the true mark of love is that it is not simply stated. It's not just that we say, I love you. Now, of course, that's right. It's good to state it. But what John is saying is that true Godlike love is more than just the words. It has to include action. And this is so important, it has to be genuine. It has to be real. Now think about this for a minute. Maybe you've done this before. We can say that we love someone and we can even serve them with our actions, but our heart can be cold toward them. Can't it? I think we're all guilty of this at times. Maybe there's a latent bitterness in your heart towards someone and it just sits there undealt with and you say, oh, I love you and you still do the things you're supposed to do in serving them, but you don't really love them. We can say that we love a brother and sister and we can even act like that, but our hearts aren't really with them. What John is saying is that true God-like love is real. It's inside of you. It's genuine. You actually have affection for that person. So John is making this standard incredibly high, isn't he? It's not just that you say it. It's not just that you do it. You have to feel it. So true godlike love must be real. Kevin read it for us this morning, but look at Romans chapter 12 with me. Turn back there. Romans chapter 12. verse 9, he says, let love be without hypocrisy. Now, that is an incredible statement. Literally, it means to be without a mask. The word hypocritos in Greek, it, it described an actor on a stage who wore a mask. A person who was just acting out a part. And Paul says, true love, genuine love, he says, let it be Unhypocritos, without a mask. Real, take the mask off. Be who you really are. What Paul is calling us to here is the same thing that John is calling us to in 1 John, 4, 1 John 3, 18, right? Let love be not only in deed, but in truth. Real. Take the mask off. Be who you really are. Really love your brothers and sisters in Christ. And that is God's character as well, right? God tells us that he loves us in the word. But he loves from the heart. God has true, warm-hearted affection for you this morning. He actually feels love for you. 
right now. He genuinely loves you as his child if you're a Christian. So John says, this is what love should look like. And he says, let us love one another. Beloved, let us love one another for love is from God. So John says, love should be constant. It should be self-sacrificial. It should be active and it should be genuine. It should be real. That's what love should look like in us. That's the standard we're called to. Now, if right now you're in your heart, you're like, check, got it. You're in huge trouble. (laughs) None of us does this well. And John actually helps us with this. We're going to end here with the how, and this is point three, the source, which is the, the new birth. The source for this kind of love is the new birth in Christ. Now, it shouldn't come as a surprise that John connects this kind of love with God in your heart, right? In, in fact, look at 1 John 4, 7 again. He says, beloved, let us love one another. He commands it, for love is from God. And then he says, everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. So love, he's connecting the source for that kind of God-like love with God himself in us. That's the connection. Those who love like this are born of God. And it's interesting, the verb there is in the perfect tense. In in verse 7, look again with me. He says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves, it should say, in the NAS it says, is born of God. In the LSV and the ESV it's better. It says, And everyone who loves has been born of God. In other words, love is the evidence that new life has happened inside of you. Has been born of God. The only way we're going to change and love this way is through the power of God dwelling in us because we're alive in him. The new birth is the way that this happens. And of course, the power to do this does dwell in us, right? Uh, Look back at chapter 3 and look at verse 9, and we'll we'll, we'll do this a little bit more in just a second. But look at chapter 3, verse 9. Look what he says. He says, No one who is born of God practices sin because his seed, God's seed, abides in him, and he cannot sin because he's born of God. Your new nature, when you came to Christ, your new life inside of you, that new birth that God gave you, that is born of God, and it loves It can't practice unrighteousness. It can't keep on unrighteousness. Why? Because it's new. Yes, you have your flesh. Yes, you're going to sin and fail in love. But when you die and your flesh goes in the ground, you will never sin again. Amen? Because you are new in Christ. And that new seed that abides in you is pushing you to love. So if that's true, and John's already said that, then why write this verse? (laughs) Why write this verse? Why even say this? He's already said basically all this stuff. The answer is in point A here, fighting the apparent lack. Fighting the apparent lack. This is obviously the greatest commandment. Jesus said it. Every New Testament author says it. It's Christ, almost his last words on earth is to command his disciples to do this. It should be obvious. But John feels this need to write an entire epistle to get to this verse and tell you to love, to command that. And the reason for that is that there is an apparent lack of love that John is addressing. There's a lack of love that he's dealing with. What's interesting is that he isn't just addressing the lack of love in other people. Notice his language again. Look at verse 7. He says, Beloved, let 
What's the word? Us. Let us love one another. He's saying there's a lack of love that's God-like love in his life. He doesn't meet the standard that he knows he's just written. He knows that he has weaknesses in this area. And maybe you've heard the phrase, misery loves company. John isn't doing that here. He's not just saying, yes, yes, we're all failures. I'm also a failure. It's bad. Let's just wallow in our failure. No, just the opposite. What John is saying is, yes, I lack love. I should love more. I should love better. And I know that all of you readers lack love as well. But let us love one another. Let's do this. That's what John is saying. Why? Because love is from God and we know God and we were born of God. We do this. John doesn't allow himself to stay in that place of complacency and just roll over and give up and say, well, it's too hard to love this person. I give up. He doesn't say that. He says, no, let us love one another. Think of what this means for your life right now. Just think. Is there someone in your life that you're not loving well right now? There is. I know there is. For every single one of us. How do I know that? Because you're all still in bodies. Every single one of us has our flesh. We're all struggling to love the way that we should love. All of us are. I know there is. Maybe it's in your marriage. Could you love your spouse better? (laughs) Could you? Of course you can. So John says what? Do it. Love. Let us love one another. Maybe it's with your kids. Could you love your kids better? Yes. Or kids, could you love your parents better? Yes, you could. Maybe it's someone in the church. Is there someone in the church who you have a hard time loving? There is. John would say, the issue isn't them. It's you. It's you. Love them. Let us love one another, he says. But what's so interesting to me is the next point. John assumes the power exists. This is point B, John's assumption. John's assumption. This is where we'll end for today, and we'll pick up in verse 8, but I want to conclude with what John assumes about you this morning. Look what he says in verse 7. He says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. What's he saying? His point is that when we show this kind of godlike love, the root assumption is that we are acting according to our new life. Our new nature is functioning. The real you, the spirit-born you is now functioning. We're doing what we should be doing when we love this way. And in fact, John's assumption when he writes this letter, and I would say even when I preach this verse to you this morning, is that the spirit of God is inside of you and he is working in your heart. He assumes that your new nature hears this verse and says, yes, 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 I need to love my wife more genuinely. Yes, I need to love my husband more accurately. Yes, I need to love my kids more sacrificially. Yes, I need to pursue that brother or sister in the church with love constantly. That is the response of a heart that's new. 
And John actually assumes that that's true about you. Isn't that fascinating? He assumes that the Spirit moves in your hearts. And he assumes that what's inside of you is saying, yes, do this. Do it. Do it. I would just appeal to you. Be so careful with self-justification. Be so careful with self-defense. There's so many ways that we can be our own best defense attorneys, can't we? And what we can do is begin to make love transactional again. We can be quick to defend ourselves, give all the reasons that we have the right to not love this way. But John assumes that the Spirit of God inside of you is telling you, do this, do this. So I would appeal to you to stop giving justifications for why you don't love in this godlike way and start repenting and trusting his power that works in you to change. You have it. And our church is so good at this. Kevin even said it this morning. I think we do this so well, but we can do better. Certainly, John loved well. But he says, let us love one another. He knows he needs to grow. All of us do. All of us do. And this is our way forward. We admit our weaknesses. <laughs> you admit it. You tell God, Lord, there's this person, they're hard for me to love. I, I want to, but they're hard for me to love. Give me genuine, active, constant, self-sacrificial love for this person. Lord, help me. We admit that we fail. And then we remember the power of God that is ours in the gospel. That all of our sins have been forgiven once and for all. That Jesus died and shed his blood so that our lovelessness is already forgiven. And that he now cares for us and dwells inside of us to empower us to change. And we turn from that sin of lovelessness and we thank God and we glorify him for his power in us. That's what we're doing in communion, isn't it? We're going to take communion this morning. It's just a reminder. It's that reminder that your sins are forgiven, that your debt has been paid in full once and for all by the blood of Christ shed on your behalf. And it's a reminder that you've been born of God and that God's love dwells in you. Communion is designed to bring us into the throne room of heaven. Have you ever thought of that? We come to Christ in communion. It's not just bread and cup that symbolize what he did for us in the past. In communion, we come to him. Look with me at Hebrews chapter 4 real quickly. Hebrews chapter 4, and just look at verse 16. The author of Hebrews says this, he says, Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. <laughs> what can we do? We can walk right into the throne room of heaven and... On the throne is grace for us. Why? Look up in verse 14. Look what he says. Therefore, since we have a high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, 
Why can we enter into the throne room of heaven right now this morning at communion? Because Jesus has already gone for us. He's made the way for us. How? Through his blood shed on our behalf. And then look what he says in verse 16. He says, Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy. Why do you need mercy? Why do you need mercy? When you come to communion, why do you need mercy? Because you're a sinner. You haven't loved the way you're supposed to love. You haven't loved your spouse the way you should. You haven't loved your kids. You haven't loved your parents. You haven't loved each other the way you should. None of us has. We need mercy. But when we come to communion, what are we told? You find mercy, forgiveness of your sins. It's taken away. And then look what he says. And you find what? Grace to help in your time of need. What's your time of need? It might be the car ride home. (laughs) It might be a conversation after church. It might be some event that you know is coming up. It might be a family dinner. I don't know. But you will find grace to help. Where? In Christ. At the throne of grace. And so this is what communion does. It brings us to Jesus. And in Christ, we find that his blood has, shed, has been shed for all of our sins and that his body was broken on our behalf and that he loves us. And when we trust that love that he has for us in his death on our behalf, we find the power to love the way that he loves. We get grace to help us in our time of need. And so I, I want to invite you to take communion this morning and to just confess your sins. <laughs> just admit admit and trust the finished work of Christ on the cross and believe that he lives in you. This is his grace that is for you this morning, right now, to love with God-like love. And for those of you with children, as elders, we would just appeal to you to be cautious, to be certain that, these, that your kids truly know Christ before you let them take communion. And I would just appeal to you, if you're here and you realize, I've never actually trusted Christ. I don't know him. Please don't take communion. Don't partake of the elements. This is for Christians. It's meant for Christians. And if you're here and you're not a Christian, don't take it. Just pray and spend some time confessing your sins and trusting in the finished work of Christ for sinners like you. So my appeal to you as we take communion this morning is that you would confess that you would repent. Those areas where you haven't loved the way that God would have you to love. And then that you would just trust that Christ's blood was shed on your behalf and that his body was broken for you and that you would know that you're forgiven, that you would find mercy and grace to help in your time of need. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you for your word and we thank you for what it commands us. Lord, we know that when you tell us that we should love like you love. Lord, it's a standard that is so high that we cannot attain it. And yet, Lord, you haven't told us that we get a pass. You've called us to it. Even the Apostle John, the one who leaned against you at the Last Supper, Lord, he admits his need to grow. Lord, we all need to grow. Lord, you know my failings in this. But all of us need to grow to love more like you love. So Lord, I pray this morning for each of us. Lord, that we would each this morning repent of our sins, confess 
admit that we have failed to love as you love. Lord, that in repentance, in confession, Lord, that we would remember that your son loved like this perfectly and that at the end of his perfect life, you put him on a cross and his body was broken and his blood was shed for us so that we could be forgiven and find mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Lord, for those who don't know you this morning, Lord, I pray that you would show them, Lord, show them that they cannot obey this command because they're not born again. But Lord, I pray that you would show them that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners and that they would trust that. Lord, we thank you that you have given us all the power we need to obey you. Lord, I pray that that would bear fruit in our lives, that we would love each other better because of what you've done for us in Christ. Lord, we love you. We thank you. In Christ's name, for his glory we pray. Amen.